0: Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways.
1: As a plant based cheese company, Deya has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together, so putting a slice of dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with dea oat cream blend. Listen
2: closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall.
0: It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just
2: the right amount of paint. Hmm. It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love.
0: Actung welcome to we have ways of making you talk uh, language appropriate introduction James why tell us
2: well we've got two historians here from the other side of the hill I don't think that's an unfair description really um, we've got <laughs> our, our old friend Bernard Karst who um, from military history visualized who we've had on before and he was brilliant uh, but we've also got his pal Christoph Bergs who runs a kind of sort of uh, sort of fellow site uh, military aviation history um, and Christoph is German not Austrian and um, uh, but they've collaborated, uh, they collaborate on research and all sorts of stuff, but they've also collaborated on translating a number of books. And not least, one which they've just sent to me, which is the Assault Platoon of the Grenadier Company, November 1944, which is a is a Merckblatt, which is a, a German army pamphlet. And this particular Merckblatt is 25A forward slash 16. And one of the I think is really, really interesting is how many training manuals were, were produced by all the main protagonists I mean I've got an absolute stack of them here and, and they are so interesting whether they be British whether they be American or whether they be German but I suppose the big question is is what can be learned from them I, I think rather a lot um but with caveats
0: of course so welcome gents um, where 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 do you find uh, an, an object like this a, a, a document like this uh, uh because because after all, the 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 winning side might be publishing theirs and uh, saying, "Hey, look at our brilliant doctrine that did so well for us." How does the how does the German doctrine survive?
3: Well, there are several aspects. Some actually were reprinted from the Bundeswehr, so I have some here which I think are from the Bundeswehr and reprint. And when I bought them, they actually noted they are from former Bundeswehr, and. The German Defense Ministry in 1960 actually did a complete index of all the, of all the German manuals. Yeah. Additionally, yeah. The, the Americans, definitely, I don't know if the British did as well, they photocopied all of them or most of them. They have a complete index in NARA in the National Archives. Right. And I'm not sure if they, I don't think they translated them. And then there's, of course, I have also some which I think are original. So, they also survived. Right. And then, of course, there's the German military archive as well. And there are a lot of them there in there as well. So, for like the, the book on the assault platoon, the Sturmzug, there we used actually, I think, one draft that only existed in the archives of one, one document, I think. There was also a printed version, but this was also a draft. And then there was a, a typewriter version as well. And so, yeah, most, a lot of them is in the archives. And also, there are some like, one of the best sellers in the german armor regulation i think it's 10 or 12 the number is actually about horse riding and you can get it from different publishers in germany and i think it's it's still a best seller up to this day so the the Reitvorschrift, i think is it called i i don't have it it's not really that interesting for me so far but in some cases yeah you have you have three prints as well but they are rather rare for the germans
0: so there's Plenty of avenues that, that 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 have basically brought these
3: kept these documents alive, basically. Yeah, of course there are a lot of them, and in some and for the first book we there was actually one mentioned, and we couldn't find any 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 documentation about it. What was actually the name? We got the number, and we looked, and and the Germans made like indexes on all their their regulations, but we couldn't find it. So we don't know if it's a misprint, or if it just it was just shortly issued and then discontinued or something
1: yeah we have a similar issue now with the book that we're working on as well where there's one document i mean we had to peruse a couple of archives to collect all the documents that we're actually using but there's one particular one from 1938 that is just lost um at least from from our knowledge uh we we can't find it in all the main archives in germany we've looked abroad as well and it's just something that that hasn't survived and one of the documents that we're using as well even though it's a luftwaffe document the copy that we have now and are using is actually from the german army so they just made a copy at some point themselves and that's how it survived because the luftwaffe copies don't seem to be in circulation however. ever
2: uh, i've come across a lot of these and i you know i've got this one here which i'm holding up which is uh, mg schutzer um uh, and you know that they're, they're, they're fabs i think they're just so instructive they tell you so much about the kind of the culture in which they're written i suppose uh and you know they're all written these ones in very thin paper of course but but that sort of heavy gothic script you know all the general books whether it be uh the Rybert or whether it be you know a, a fairly large book like this they all do have their sections on horses and you know horse care and and all this sort of stuff which is of course very absent from a British or American one. But I also remember going to the um, Bundesarchiv in um, Freiburg and um, looking at a load of Merblats, you know, the fundamentals of defense, fighting procedures for heavy and light infantry weapons, fighting against enemy aircraft, fighting procedures for the company and ongoing resistance, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then there's also, uh, uh, on top of the uh, Merblats, there's also a bunch of training instructions which are numbered. So, for example, Training instruction number thirty-one is um, experiences regarding tank defence, and you know, again they're just just fascinating because I mean it was from that from one of these that I kind of learned that the Germans were thinking actually operating in the Bocage in Normandy was an absolute nightmare. I mean I'd always rather felt that it kind of favoured the defender because you had a kind of mobile defence by where you could just... You had this field system, and you could give up one field, but then pull back to another hedge, and you've got the same kind of defence. It's not like a piece of concrete that, that you're rooted to that spot. It gives you a kind of flexibility. But the point, of course, is without any aerial reconnaissance, which the German armies in Normandy don't really have, they can't see anything. So what should on paper be a advantageous defensive position for a modern army of 1944 becomes a disadvantage a disadvantageous one uh, and that's absolutely
3: fascinating so one thing about your book i think this is not an official army publication yeah no it's fun- not. no it's it's yeah. in it's
2: in, the, it's in the same league as the Rybert.
3: yeah yeah and that's why it's interesting because for the official army regulations i haven't found a single one with a swastika on it Whereas the Reibad, there's a huge swastika yes. on it on, and this as well. So usually you can yeah, tell. Yeah, on this one you can see it here. No, yeah, no, and, and for the Luftwaffe, I heard it's it's kind of mixed. And for the Kriegsmarine as far as I know, they have a swastika mostly on there. So you can also see that the, the different branches of the Wehrmacht actually make them differently as well.
1: Yeah, for the Luftwaffe, it's, it's usually it's also lacking. But uh, I think we had this discussion once before Bernhard where we sort of noted that maybe... Because the army is the oldest sort of really surviving branch, um, that they were more traditional in a way that they didn't put a political symbol on there. Whereas the Luftwaffe and the Kriegsmarine were reset completely in sort of nineteen thirty-five to nineteen thirty, uh, sorry, nineteen forty-three to nineteen thirty-five, and that maybe has that a little bit of a political element in there.
0: So, 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 who's writing these? Yeah, that's manuals. what I was going to ask. What's the what's the process? I mean, are people because. Uh, are, are, are people going to conferences and discussing stuff? Are they sending reports back? Is there someone collating this? Because uh, 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 this isn't at staff college level, is it? Or uh, It, it uh, depends. Uh, it really depends. So, yeah, on, so take us the the through view. the process of, of how one of these manuals comes into existence.
3: I, I can only tell you that um, with the absolute security, I can't tell you anything. That's the main issue here. <laughs> Because as pointed out in the last podcast, we don't have any substantial study from what I know on the training in the Wehrmacht. And we also don't have a substantial study on the tactics of the Wehrmacht because so it's actually quite hard to determine the influence of them and how they were written. What I found, although with all this semi, I call them semi-official like the Reibat and publications I've seen is that sometimes They are verbatim copies of complete sentences, sometimes complete um, paragraphs or even maybe even chapters and also of the graphics. Now here's the question which I I haven't found an answer yet because you actually had to study all of them because they are also quite incremental. So did the guys that wrote the semi-official copy the official ones or the other way around or was it the same author? And because there's yeah. also like, I think for the, I remember like how the, the squad, the German squad formation moves, like how, how they transfer from the line to skirmish line and, and something along those lines. I saw that and I think at one point I, I stumbled across a late World War I document or, or just the one of the 1920s and suddenly it was the same set graphics. I was like, okay, this goes way back. And then if you look at this, it's all incremental, they build up like you have the, the, the basic work on the Doctrine the uh, Führung Gefecht Gefechter verbundenen Waffen, which is from 1921, and this is actually quite ironic. It was published on the 1st September 1921, so exactly 18 years before the Second World War started in Europe. And then came Truppenführung in 1933, 1944, and they, they all build up on those. And so it, it's kind of, and I don't know if the people wrote in their memoirs from. I, I'm not an expert on memoirs, so if they noted when they wrote something or not. So, I simply don't know. There's definitely there's definitely copying going on, and I think also one person on Twitter who works in the in the German military archives. I think he noted that one publication was just made an official one and I actually I actually have one, they also transferred like Heigl, Taschenbuch der Tanks, Pocketbook on Tanks, was published as a regular book and as you can see here the Germans made it into a Dienstvorschrift and republished oh. it with a number on it. So the, um, this is also a reprint but, but they kept this. So they sometimes just import complete works, maybe they adapted it a bit like adding a foreword or um, preface or something, but on the whole process, I haven't found anyone who wrote on this. Maybe there's something out there and I missed it. I mean, it, it's not my my main job to so look into this. I basically started tra- translating them and then, of course, looked up. But I also asked around a few historians and they all noted, I don't, we don't know very much about this. Maybe there's something, but not from what I know.
2: I mean, I must admit, when I was, I, I was doing a whole load of research some years ago into you know army training and it is really interesting because you and and actually al you and i've talked about it on the pod before but but it is it is there is no work on training in the german army at all that you know it just doesn't exist so you have to kind of sort of piece it together and what's what's really clear is it's a constantly evolving thing so there's a kind of sort of ideal process you know where you have the you know you have the fun and who's a kind of you know a, 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 a an officer to be but but he's in the ranks as basically as an NCO a non-commissioned officer and then he's got to earn his stripes and prove his worth and then he goes to Krieg schooler uh, and then eventually after that he then becomes a, a you know a, a, a junior officer and, and works his way up but by the middle of the war that's kind of being sort of that's completely shot there's none of that he's just like okay you'll do you're you you're, you're you've proved yourself you can be an officer now and it is literally you know in the field and, and of course you know we will know that the training programmes were just being cut and cut and cut as the war progressed. So, you know, that I remember talking to that Falschemjäger who was, I think he was in third um division in Normandy and he'd been in Brittany and he'd basically done six weeks training. I mean, that was it. It was basic training. Then he was posted to Brittany and you kind of trained on the job. And before he was forced, you know, before they were marched up to Normandy on foot to to join the battle, he had done no all arms training whatsoever you know his, his training in Brittany had been laying mines you know laying yet more mines putting up some wire you know doing a bit of rifle practice that kind of thing so you know he, he the only thing that's keeping them together is a kind of sort of esprit de corps it's not it's not brilliant training or anything and you're dependent on by that stage on a handful of hardened veterans to kind of teach their men on the job whether they be junior officers or whether they be NCOs. I mean, and, and that's how it's done. So I guess these these training pamphlets are, and it seems to me they become kind of, uh, you, you can put me right or wrong on this, you two, but, but it seems to me that there's, there's more writing on training and lessons learned and all that kind of stuff as the war progresses than there is at the beginning of the war. And I wonder whether that's partly to do with the changing situation, they're no longer on the attack, they're for the most part on the defence, but also but, uh, to make up for the shortfall of actual training before they get to the front?
1: With uh, with a lot of these things also, also, I mean, you have the regulations, right? The Richtlinien, and then you have the Merkblatter, which are a different category. And then you have the experience reports, which are being disseminated. And I think most of the, the troops probably in the field, when they summarize an experience report and then disseminate it amongst other units, they can probably, depending on what their task is, use that more. And what is in actually written in the official Richtlinien, because those are more generic, more basic, more broad, rather than something that is directly, let's say, um, has to do with Ju 87s trial going on an anti shipping missions, which isn't really doesn't really exist in the official training regulations, but has been sort of collected in in experience report and then Merkblatter and then been disseminated to the units that do that sort of stuff.
2: I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at your your. Fantastic translation here. And you know, sort of um point twenty eight The platoon leader supervises the preparations for the assault. He charges ahead of everyone, pulls his men forward and breaks in with the assault squads. <laughs> the assault takes place under lively fire of all the weapons of the platoon and with loud sustained hooray calls. Sturmgewehr forty four assault rifles are to be fired during the movement and the enemy is to be showered with fire. Quick successive targeted single shots are to be fired during the assault and fire bursts, two to three shots, are to be fired during the break-in. I mean, it's it's, it's absolutely amazing.
0: That, um, I think. that sounds a little like wishful thinking, some of that, though, doesn't it? Um, I mean, you yeah. know... I, 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 I and after all yes. there's, there's... I mean I'll
2: just add this out. The the high morale effect of the Sturmgewehr forty four is to be used for a fast assault run up to the enemy positions. Right. I. e. shooting from the hip and just firing it and so spraying, yeah, yeah. spraying the place of lead.
3: You need to consider what, what is written before that basically they should move as closely as possible to the enemy without being detected. Yeah. That they basically say don't shoot yourself forward. Nach vorne schießen, I don't know how we translated that because I remember this was quite complicated. There should be at least one footnote there. Just so don't shoot, don't shoot your way into position. Yeah, basically. so basically yeah. move slowly forward. I think it was reintröpfen oder forward, tröpfen like drip oh, forward. Tough, yeah. So like a single man. And they also note specifically that the Sturmgewehr should not be used in auto fire, generally, but in single shot fire, and only during the break-in when really close combat, then automatic fire or even burst fire in that sense. So it really depends where you look. There are some parts that look reckless and are reckless, but this is like the final part, the break-in. And I think basically when you should do the break-in, the enemy should be suppressed by machine gun fire and mortar fire and everything else. Then you can jump forward and do this. It doesn't mean it will work, but (laughs) definitely. And also they, they made a distinction, I think this is from the... The, from the Panzertruppe as far as I know, they later in 1944, they introduced um, a, a supply company and basically they said, we need the young guys to don't care about supplies anymore because that was originally also part of the company commander, they should focus on firing and the administration other stuff that can be done by the old guys. This comes also in which was not the case before. But back to the general developments, there are some aspects to consider. One very good point was made by by Dr. and he pointed out, we don't know enough about training and especially what we don't know enough about training in the field. And here's the main problem, what was done in each division? Or even worse, in each regiment or below, because there's one case made by by, uh, Name I forgot the name now, uh, but he he reviewed uh, a book on on the Gebirgsjäger, and and he noted about the war crime situation there was a, quite a, a severe difference between the different regiments and battalions, so that you have a very high number on the one in one battalion, but very low numbers on the others, and so the question is generally where at what level can you talk about, um, and on the on the main level we have like. The training was done mostly by the by the, Asatsia, the replacement army, and they have also their own regulations and I saw like they have complete plans what lessons should be done at what point. But here we don't know if they actually executed it or not. And also to, to watch the degree and when. And the change in the regulation as you previously asked if there was a change, that's, that's a bit hard to determine. What I noticed is basically the first usually brought up the company manual, then they made the battalion. And then the regiment. So I should have here, yeah. This is this is the for the for the Schützen company, the rifle company, it's from 1941. And then I have the one if I find it. For the battalion, which is oh, it's actually from 1940, but but the, the other one was just updated. And I think the one for the regiment only came out in 1945. So actually for the main publications. There was, I think, between, I might be wrong here, from 1943 to 1945, there was very little. So, instance, the, the Gebirgsjäger, I think the mountain troops, had also won in 1945. And also for the, for, the, for the Panzertruppen, there was quite for a long time, there was only the company manual, and there was a preliminary one in 1941 for the battalion and regiment. And only in 1945, they finally published the not preliminary one. And there, there seems to be, there was at one point a delay, but then again, there's the difference between the training regulations, I think they focus more on the training regulations and less on the other ones. So there's also like to determine which one is which and who, who is the intended um, audience for, for, for these books as well, or booklets, because you can also tell by the way, I, I noticed most of them have, have this format but there are a few that have a different format that is larger. Now, what is the difference? This one is about correspondence in the Wehrmacht, and this is a training manual or a textbook for, for uh, uh, medical NCOs and enlisted men. I, f- I think the difference in size is because you don't take these into the field, whereas these ones you probably take into the field. Yes,
0: the larger books presuppose an office, don't they? Bookshelves rather than rather than being a book you can fit in your pocket I mean literally I mean this is really really interesting because because after all the the, the sort of casual historiography is that the Germans are very much are much better trained than their allied counterparts that they've got training worked out that and, and that's one of the reasons where the, 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 the historiography has always told us that the Germans attack have greater tactical know-how and greater tactical now so, you know it's probably been one of the things that that you'll read in British history books, uh, uh, time immemorial, and yet, I mean, we've talked a lot about on the podcast a lot about British training, and that you have in the British Army because it's an imperial army. You've got its tradition that basically that from divisional level down, the divisions decide what they're going to do doctrinally, because after all, they may be in they may be in the Hindu Kush, you know, they may they may be in Malta, they may be in France, they don't know where they're going to end up. So they don't. So their training isn't uniform. And then as the war goes on, there's a concerted effort to crystallize training in the in the army, even though there's tension between cavalry with their own tradition and infantry and then trying to combine them and trying to get them to talk to each other. And then the pressure of the turnover of war, which is the thing James has written about really brilliantly in his new book, which is that is that the armoured, the armoured, Infantry cooperation is really difficult to coordinate. And any time anyone's put with anyone new, they haven't worked with before, there's a problem. Even though there are these conferences and there's stuff being written and sent down, um, uh, it's still not, there's still not able. Theory, theory, is, theory is one thing, practice is another. You've got such a high turnover of company commanders and, and, and you know, well, platoon company um, and battalion commanders that, you know, who knows if they've, got any experience at all or read the manual or digested any of the any of what's going on so it's, I mean it's just so fascinating to hear the, the you know that because the, the Wehrmacht is we're, we're told this we've been I've been told this since I was a little boy the German soldier is much better trained than the British soldier and that explains his tactical know-how but to hear that you don't even you can't even locate this you don't know you don't know I mean for instance the book you've translated
3: how many copies were printed do we know? no idea no no idea i think Fantastic. i have for for one specific book but that I is it. that they have numbers and they actually made a recall and said hey we sent out too many sent sent them back and also denoted this is this book is only for this administrative position. So, this was for channel staff officers. So, if you leave your position, you leave the book there. You don't take the book with you. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 they didn't say that you, they said it more in general. They say this book is associated with this channel, a channel staff position. So, and if somebody leaves, yeah, this, this is for the position, not for, for the person. So, and I don't know if this is the same for, for those ones. and... And it, yeah, it's it's basically a lot in the dark. We don't know for, for the training, how, how it was done. So also for the, for the whole command and leadership situation as well. I think there's now a PhD study on this. Well, I mean, you know, one is is
2: dependent on eyewitness testimonies and memoirs and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I remember talking to a, a German machine gunner called Franz Marsen and talking about his training in very great detail. He's fascinating about it. I mean, absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, and it and it, but but what was clear was it basically was exactly the same as American and British, because ultimately there's a limit to what you can do if you're an. I mean, he was an infantryman he became an, a machine gunner, but there's a limit to what you can do. You you know you're not you, so to start off with, I mean the Germans have an advantage in that they're already disciplined. Mm-hmm. You know because of Hilly Youth because of you know the uh, um, the work core that they had to do before you join up and all that kind of stuff. So there's, uh, and the fact that Germany at that time is a militaristic state, so, you, you know, all of that is kind of sort of, I, I guess, helps. But of course, it's square bashing, it's route marches, it's 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 rifle firing, it's all this kind of stuff, it's polishing and of belt buckles and, and boots and so on. Um, there's a limit to what you can do in terms of all-arm training, because there isn't the space and the logistic support to support that. And, and there aren't, you know, in the case of the German I army, mean, there just aren't enough tanks, there aren't enough pieces of artillery to, to spare them training infantry recruits. And as you pointed out, infantry divisions train as divisions. You know, there is a, there's a kind of ersatz division, isn't there? And you say you join the 33rd. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you you join that 33rd ersatz battalion. And then once you're ready, you then join the 33rd Battalion, you know of whatever division
3: it is uh, and,
2: and it is sort of regional to start off with isn't it in the first part of the war Yeah, so it's
3: right. a it's a regional system I mean, I mean the, the thing is about uh, polishing belt buckles and all this stuff from what I know and read a few times now is That they actually work right against this they call this I think schleifen, which is um, schleife, uh, Chris, what is schleifen in, in English? Um, grind? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Bullshit. To, to, to grind, so in the, in pretty the much. British army, it's bullshit <laughs> yeah, I, I think particularly they had one uh, in, in, after Poland that they particularly said we have a few old guys that train here like in the first world, but that's not going to happen. We, we want actual um, training that makes sense. And I think we also have in the Sturmzug book, in the Assault book, there's something like you have training like there's Gefechtschießen and I think Schulgefechtschießen. And and at first you look at this ah oh, that's the same word and then I looked it up in 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 one one encyclopaedia or something they made okay this one is I think on the one is I think on platoon level and the other is on company level then so, and this is how you train you train the, the man then you train the squad then you train the platoon then to train the company and then you train the all order so it it goes up like a pyramid and of course at the very top is all arms training but. The question is, does anyone reach it? And actually, there's a quite interesting aspect here. I assume that the American Army was probably one of the most centralized and focused. And if I remember correctly, uh, Chifter and Nicholas Moran, you had him on the podcast already, um, Mm -hmm. at one point mentioned, I'm not sure if it was two different divisions or two different cores, but I think it was divisions. And he noted for the the Sherman tank, you had a stabilizer for the gun. And the one division or one formation loved it and the other one hated it. And the other one was trained. the first one was trained on it and the second not and to turn it off. So even for, for, for them, you have like this and the Americans are very good field manners, from what I know as well. So you have always this problem, so who, what, where, and, and with the German army, it's also it's, it's also more complicated divisions on the Western Front, divisions in Norway, divisions on the Eastern Front. And then also what kind of divisions as well. So that that is so basically what I mean with a sufficient study. You need at least one PhD student to go like look at all the what is written, then check what is in all the memoirs, and then also ideally add also up what what interviews you can get with people, and then he probably can make a certain assessment that it was likely in that way. And then you have like five or ten PhDs that look into each of the questions he brought actually up, we need to take a a closer look at. And basically we we miss all the the basic research. But Wechstein noted that, yeah, we don't have a tactical history. So we actually, it's like, if you ask a question, how did the the manuals influence tactics? Yeah, no idea because we don't have a real tactical history. We don't know were the Germans brilliant to the end of the war, were they never brilliant, on what level, and when did it stop? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, after all, if the manuals are, re- is
0: the manual a reflection of what's going on, or an attempt to address a lack of of, 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 of prowess, or is it a reflection of prowess? You know, you 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 know, uh, is it an attempt to co- correct the course of German tactical performance? What's happening in the in the Luftwaffe at this uh, 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 in the in this sort of story? Christoph, is it a similar a similar kind of arc trajectory? Um,
1: yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, especially now that we're looking into um, documents with the Ju eighty-seven, so the Stuka dive bomber. I mean, we're definitely seeing sort of a divide between the theory that was done pre-war to what actually happened in the war, and we see this very quickly already with Poland and France. So they start out the war, let's say, if we if we hone in here on the Stukas, they start out saying you know, the Stuka is the um direct quote here from from a from a document der Scharfschütze unter den Kampffliegern yeah so he's the sniper yeah. amongst the bombers right. and, which means that he essentially has the same targets the stuka is used you know against yeah offshore bridges you know, small pinpoint targets but also against industry and specifically for example the electrical uh, housing in an industrial complex complex right if right. you send out bombers there, you're probably not going to have the accuracy to destroy that specific building in the industrial complex, so you send the Stukas. And then beyond that, sure enough, the Stuka can be used against ground units uh, that are being rushed towards the front lines against the logistical uh, system and the reserves. But beyond before that, it's really all static targets, whether that's command and control, headquarters, communication, or industry. Whereas then as soon as we hit Poland... We're starting to see oh wait we actually need the stuka to be closer to, fr- to the front lines hit artillery positions hit um you know the staging points of the polish army uh hit those bottlenecks that initially the germans were saying like oh you know if we can destroy fast-moving uh, enemy uh, ground troops you know, like mechanized or motorized yeah. units then we can only do that in bottlenecks like bridges or cities where they can't really escape but in yeah. Poland it, it transpires no no we have to hit them in the field and that's when you right. start seeing those experience reports then influencing you know a couple of merkblätter but honestly after after 1949 we don't see that many sort of richtlinien or so you know the regulations or the merkblätter being published by the luftwaffe it's mainly done with experience reports that are then disseminated and and also very much used sort of on the unit level yeah so obviously With the Luftwaffe, we also have this very interesting example where we have a Geschwader, and then that is broken up into, let's say, drei Gruppen, three uh, three groups, and those are being used in different geographical locations. Two might be on the Eastern Front, one might be in Africa or wherever yeah, and they have different needs and different experiences, and of course they will share information with them if one group is being pulled, let's say from the Eastern Front over to the Mediterranean, and then obviously the one that's already there is going to help them sharing information, but their staging route might be completely different. Again, one might be actually in Africa while the other one is in Greece. Um, yeah so yeah it's 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 very interesting, I think, and definitely compared with the hair, uh, we're seeing less sort of changes to the actual training manuals and more changes to how the information is being disseminated between the groups in a sort of unofficial manner, you could even say.
0: We just need to take a quick break. We're talking to Christoph Bergs and Bernard Kust about training manuals and what do they tell us? welcome back to we have ways of making you talk with me Al Murray and James Holland and we're talking training on the other side of the hill the the business of of, of being a trained pilot you're operating on a different on a different level to a, to a squad of infantry aren't you yeah. that everyone everyone's at a certain technical uh, level anyway um, and, and and so maybe you, there's an assumption that you're you you know you don't need training you don't need explaining to you how a set an aircraft moves in the way it's, <laughs> a, a, an infantry section might need that explaining it to yeah. you. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, definitely. But then it's, it's 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 actually about breaking down the application of the um, uh, uh, of things more technically than than actually how you do the basics, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that uh, the Luftwaffe, for example, has really published much on how their tactics change, like taking, once again, the the Stukas, you know, how does a Stuka actually attack? Now, in our popular image nowadays, influenced probably also from movies and and video games and sort of even the propaganda of the time, you know, we have this image of Stuka is at 5,000 meters. It makes a loop or it like makes a half roll, dives down 90 degrees vertically, bombs, whatever it bombs is destroyed and it flies away. And that that is sort of the image you also get from the very early pre-war sort of regulations. But even there it says, um, actually, you know, 90 degrees is not always favorable. 70 degrees is a lot better. Don't do that half roll because that's going to disorient the pilot. That's going to disorient the, the gunner and radio operator in the back. Plus, if you're doing this in a formation, you're just inviting a disaster. But even then, if you look at any sort of documentaries that are shown nowadays, what is the footage that we see? We see this. It's yes, that, that, isn't it? In- it's very, very yeah. nicely yeah. executed. that's propaganda footage feeding our sort of image of of that plane right um but all those complications and all those issues were already explained and they have different ways you know they say like don't just go straight down you can go down in a a sort of stair where a stair um, approach where you go down a thousand meters then straighten out go down a thousand meters again straighten out go down a thousand meters and then you make your dive and so on um so there's, I think that's also one of the challenges we have nowadays, sort of the popular image that has been ingrained in us for a long time. You've, you said it earlier, yeah. Al, with you know the German army being this very sort of tactically proficient army. That's the, the, the popular image that we have. But then if we actually look into the documents, we start finding that images we have in our head of the war are somewhat different to what at least yeah. has been spelled out in these documents and how they should be doing things, theoretically speaking.
2: Well, yes. I mean, and this is something that we've been talking about pretty much nonstop since we started this podcast two and a half years ago. Um, so I completely agree with you. I, I suppose my, my question for you guys is, is you know, wh- what do you think we can learn from these training pamphlets? I mean, do, do you think they are a valuable historical primary source?
1: Yes, but
0: um i mean just like i said now
1: it's my favorite kind of answer <laughs> yes but i mean definitely if, going back to the primary sources i think we can definitely start addressing some of the misconceptions perhaps that have been around and start thinking a little bit more about how these units were trained and how they were um used in the field but then again that doesn't invalidate all of the research that has already been done especially also from sort of uh um uh, Interviews with servicemen who who explained this is how we did that, and then you can of course take that information and you compare it to the actual regulations that are in place, and you can see certain divides in there. Um, with my sort of main Luftwaffe focus, I can only really speak there. Is I think it's it's incredibly valuable going back to the to those initial documents, but also keeping in mind, just like I said, there's something written on a paper, and then the unit is in. One unit is in, in on the Eastern Front, one is in Africa, one is on the Western Front, and they are operating in a completely different environment, doing completely different sets of tasks, which might not have been spelled out in these documents or have been spelled out in such a way that they are really not practical anymore. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of Stukas aren't useful against um, fast-moving uh, enemy ground units, and so we should not really focus on hitting those. Unless we absolutely have to, is already dispelled immediately in the operations in Poland and definitely then also in France, and yeah. you know, we don't even have to talk about the Eastern Front; that's obvious there.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose there's, there's I mean, there's, there's certain sort of consistencies, aren't there? There's certain things which are applicable whether you are in the North African desert or whether you are on the on the Russian steppes. I mean, or, or in Greece or wherever. It, you know, there are certain things, certain principles. Which are gonna hold true and I suppose that that's what one wants to take on it. I mean what it's absolutely clear to me is is that tactics are constantly being modified on the hoof, you know, on the fly. As they're coming. Because of course you know, suddenly you find your you know, if you're a German soldier and you suddenly find yourself in North Africa. I mean you obviously clearly you haven't trained for that. You know, but suddenly you're part of the you know, the fifteenth flight division or whatever. And you're suddenly in North Africa, careering towards Benghazi. You you you've, you, you know you are uh, an experienced, well-trained soldier. You've, you you might have seen some action in Poland or France or whatever. So you've got battle experience. That's that is just such an advantage, the fact that you've got that. So then it's up to you to to bring what you already know, and augment it with this new environment you, you find yourself in and, and adapt, isn't it? I mean, that, that and, and then disseminate that through as quickly as possible. And that's, of course, what all these sort of training pamphlets are being developed for. But, of course, there's also a lag. I mean, you know, in the case of the British, for example, you know, they were learning the lessons from the Sicilian campaign, but they're only coming into being in training programmes in April 1944. Well, that's already too late for D-Day. You know, and Sicily is a very different place from from normandy so there's only so much one can learn and i suppose it's 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 fundamentals isn't it really is 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 where training really really helps um ultimately the best training of all is just being in action isn't it
1: it's it's also interesting to see sort of the divide between um the air and the ground because i think the transferable skills that you might have as as a soldier on the ground are somewhat more applicable to somebody in the air so we we see this very much with sort of german pilots that have these high-scoring um, kill claims numbers on the Eastern Front, but then suddenly being thrust against you know Allied bombers and the RAF, the uh, United States Army Air Force, and barely scoring any kills, and ba- you know oftentimes being shot down in the first couple of missions because everything they've learned so far is out of the window because the, the environment is completely different. The the opposing aircraft are completely different. They're flown by pilots who operate on completely different um, skill set or a completely different mindset as well. You're used to a certain environment for one or two years, and then suddenly everything you know is just thrown out of well, the window. Well, that's something that gets said about Normandy a lot, doesn't
0: it? It's that, is that, that some of the German units are, are very experienced from the Eastern Front, but actually the, the fighting is so radically different that the Brit- the British and the Americans conduct- and Canadians are conducting themselves in such a different way to the Eastern Front in terms of density and stuff like that, um, that that actually being experienced only only gets you only gets you so far without sort of being able to stop and think about what you can do, and you know the- and the British experience is the same. You know, lots of a-, a large chunk of Second Army is very very experienced from the desert and from and from Italy. And then realizes that, that, that Normandy is just nothing like it. And then, but there very often there isn't time in the you know in the clinch of combat to 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 come up with anything you know immediately. You know that's the, that that's very much the British experience, isn't it, Jim? In, in Normandy, is, is the units are the units who are very very experienced still have enormous problems because just because France is different to Italy. I mean, it's as it's sort of as simple as that. Well, and, 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 and by the same token.
2: Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, you know, the classic example is the Western Desert in 1940, 41, you know, where you have the Western Desert Fort, the British Western Desert Fort, running rings around the Italians, absolutely smashing them. And what they're doing is using really flexible um, and mobile tactics, using lots of of machinery and trucks and stuff to sort of beetle around all over the place. And they just, you know, they're outmanoeuvring the, the Italians as much as anything else. And then the Germans turn up and they suddenly get completely bogged down by what seems to be like the enormous tactical flair of of Rommel's leadership. And and they almost sort of go backwards. It's really, it's really interesting. Uh, And that is also kind of sort of in the middle of all that is Greece and Crete, which involves lots of troops who have been, had been fighting the Italians in 1940, 41. And so they're also losing that expertise at the same time, you know, so it's, 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 it's const- Do you know what I mean? Because because a lot of the troops that were fighting against the Italians in 1940-41 yeah. then get taken to Greece and Crete. So they're then out of the North African battle for a bit. So suddenly you've got increasing numbers of British troops moving into... into who haven't had that experience, and a lot of the experience is gone. But also, even at that higher level, at that command level, of people who have been fighting in um, the, the, the Italians and doing so well, by the time that the, the, the Panzer Army gets developed... They've sort of almost forgotten those lessons again. So, so it's just nothing standing still at all, and they sort of managed to get themselves tied up in knots, and get out
0: out tacticked by the Germans effectively. But this, I suppose, uh, uh, what 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 we're saying in a roundabout way here is your generalisations about any of this will get you nowhere. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, that is basically what I'm saying.
0: That's basically where we've ended up, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. No, 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 none of the generalizations, because because none of it's
3: static. It that's doesn't. It. I suppose. It, yeah. It, so that's a much better
2: know. way of saying something that I said very complicatedly.
3: <laughs> so, um, um. <laughs> about the original question, what we can learn from them, I think a lot is uh, about the basics, on the basics understanding of what they had. For instance, for for the Panzer company regulation, we actually generally. If you look at the Panzer IV the early one with the short belt 75mm gun, everyone thinks it's a support tank. In the company manual, 1941, they write it's also excellent for taking on tanks. Right. And a lot of people noted when they read this, okay, um, yeah, there's all wrong misconceptions because we think in 1942, 1933 standards where the long belt, Panzer IV engages tanks, but for 1941, which was written in ni- like on the on the experiences of France basically. The short belt 75mm gun was still okay to deal with tanks. Right. And, yeah. and, and the other thing is like you get so you get the basic understanding what they had at the time and a lot of terminology, which especially you see with if you have addition, which we did, where we look at the original what were the, the terminology explained you get a basic understanding of certain terms and what they meant and not meant like Schulgefechtsschießen, Gefechtsschießen and then you can also see ah, okay there's different training levels so you get a better understanding on, on the whole system and additionally what I found interesting from late 1944 I found from the commander of a Army, he noted we Uh, The people don't know our regulations and this is a no-go and he listed several points why this is bad. And he particularly noted one aspect which I found interesting. He noted we are wasting time discussing how to do certain things that are already decided or we already know how to do because we wrote this in the regulations. So, that uh, that document is very interesting because it, it tells us guys, you're not reading them, but at the same time, you can see that he puts a lot of value on them. And he says, these are all the newest experiences, this is all the newest weapons and all the other stuff. So it seems the regulation were quite valuable, at least for him or what he wrote, because maybe he didn't mean it. And yeah. and also that they were not that well received or well used. I mean, there's also, I'm not entirely sure, you probably know the Tiger Feeble and Panther yeah. feeble the, the primer. Yeah, I've got I've got the take a fable, yeah. And and they make make with make, make comics and everything and with fun and, and kind of poems. And I heard at one point that this was done so that the chance of reading it is higher. <laughs> but I'm not sure if this is correct. But the, the one statement by the by the channel of the Panther Army seems to indicate this that there's not enough reading being done. And he complains about this, and also notes how valuable uh, this information is at the same time. Yeah, I,
0: it, I mean, after all, you can you can print a ma- you can print a thing all you like, but actually getting people to read it is, uh, 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 and then once they've read it, take it in, and then you know, I mean, the, the, simply the existence of a document in a way proves the existence of a document, and uh, and no, and nothing else. Um, uh, which which is your yes, but answer, isn't it, Christoph? Basically, yeah, essentially. Um,
1: <laughs> I mean, it's 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 funny uh, what you just said, Bernhard. Because also, if you if you look sort of at the differences in in how different nations make their manuals, um, you know, if 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 you look at aircraft, the the pilot sort of manuals that the U.S. Army Air Force publishes at the end of the war, incredibly visual. They 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 show everything with the sort of the information being laid out in the clear concise manner sometimes a yeah. little bit humorous as well but they're incredibly visual with everything sort of shown and uh, um well visualized right whereas yeah. the, the RAF and also the Luftwaffe they they keep being very technical so you open up one of the many parts that a single aircraft manual will be constituted out of in the Luftwaffe and you go through you know how okay so the altimeter of the aircraft you don't just get a, a sentence saying that what this altimeter does which is essentially what you would get in the, the uh, air force manual you're getting how what it does plus how it works in excruciating detail so you know the, the, <laughs> how the contacts a uh, few uh, contacts are laid with the electrical system whether they yeah. the hydraulics are involved not with the altimeter, of course, and how, how the whole system is being uh, relayed. Whereas sort of the British manual, the RAF manuals, are sort of in between. They're still very uh, much approachable, but a little bit dry, I would say, compared to, to what the United States uh, prints. And that, I think, also shows you a little bit sort of the, the difference in, okay, we want this stuff to be read, but also we don't want people to really waste time on it. While Because while a crew chief might be interested in how exactly electrical contacts are being laid on this new version of the plane that he's just gotten. The pilot's not going to care. He just yeah. wants, you know, the, the altimeter and the f- switches to do what they say they do.
0: Yeah. 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 Gosh, this is, uh, this is a, uh, this is all, this is so fascinating. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for talking, talking to us about this chaps. Cause, because I mean, I, I mean, I've, i it's the, I've touched on this a lot is that, is that, that, that there is a historiographical idea of what, of, of, of the Germans, and especially the Wehrmacht. In fact, that are here really about how it how it operated tactically, which might be true. I mean, it's the thing. It might be true, but no one's no one's found out. So all the so all the generalisations about German tactical brilliance, we're not saying they're not true. Even we're just saying it 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 sits in the sort of not proven basket, doesn't it, at the moment? Yeah. Um, which is which, uh, uh, and maybe you're gonna maybe you're gonna go off and prove that, and then and then uh, all the sort of t- uh, cynical British historians will have to suck their teeth and say they were wrong after all.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks so much, gents. Um, uh, really, really, really interesting. Um, uh, um, we'll have you back on. I think we need to talk more Luftwaffe don't we? G- yeah, you? no,
2: definitely. We, we can never, we can never talk about the Luftwaffe enough. And um, <laughs>
0: uh, and we we would both of you back on, please. Yeah, 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 please.
3: Fantastic. Yeah, thanks very yeah.
0: much for having us. Right, it's a total pleasure. Thanks, gentlemen. Cheerio, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.
3: Thank you.